0: Good evening. And welcome. I'm Adam Scheer. I'm the Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions. uh, And I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous peoples and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We'd also like to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture series, in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. So now's the time in uh, the course of our evening where I politely ask you to check your cell phones and any other electronic devices that might make a sound. Uh, and while you silence those, i uh, tell you about a few upcoming events. Uh, as we approach America's 250th anniversary, we've got the opportunity to reflect on the milestones that propelled us to American independence, including March 12th. 1773, when Virginia formed the Committee of Correspondence and established a new national dialogue. I hope you'll join us Sunday, March 12, 2023, 250 years to the day, at 4 p.m. as we mark this anniversary with a lecture featuring one of the newest books about this founding era, uh, where we'll be very pleased to have with us the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stacy Chef, who will be talking about her new book on Sam Adams. So mark your calendars for that. It's a very hot ticket. On March 16th uh, at noon, we'll have uh, historian and author Connor Williams here uh, talking about his experiences as a member of the Congressional Naming Commission, uh, which is, as you probably know, has been working on uh, several forts in Virginia uh, for which the commission has recommended new names. And finally, last but certainly not least, uh, on March 18th, uh, we will open our special exhibition, one of the largest we've ever done, Apollo When We Went to the Moon, which will chronicle the timeline from the beginning of the space race to the collaborative culture of the International Space Station Program and beyond. This is a joint venture with us and the US Space and Rocket Center, as well as the Langley Research Center uh, here in Virginia Uh, where we'll have a special section of the exhibition that talks about Virginia's place in the story of how the U.S. went from having the smallest aeronautics program in the Western world to becoming the first nation to land on the moon. And if you remember, uh, you by now have probably uh, gotten word that there will be two special previews on March 15th at 2 p.m. and 5 p.m., If you're not a member, what better incentive for you to join? So on for tonight's program, Uh, we're always so pleased to have uh, Doug Brinkley uh, back at the the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, uh, where tonight he'll be talking about his latest book, Silent Spring Revolution. A book which chronicles the rise of environmental activism during the 1960s and early 1970s and tells the story of a generation that quite literally save the natural world under the leadership of Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. President Kennedy was in fact quite inspired by Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which was published in 1962. Carson's book launched an eco revolution among the American people, which went on on to inspire landmark legislation during the presidencies of Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. Silent Spring Revolution explores these milestones through the first Earth Day in 1970, after which every American life would forever be touched by the environmental movement. Silent Spring Revolution is a seminal work, crucial to understanding the battle to protect America's land, water, wildlife, and air, a battle that continues well into the 21st century. Douglas Brinkley is the Catherine Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University. He is also a CNN presidential historian and a contributing editor to Vanity Fair. Six of his books were named New York Times Notable Books of the Year, and seven became New York Times bestsellers. His works include The Great Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, and the Mississippi Gulf Coast, The Wilderness Warrior, Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusade for America, and Rightful Heritage, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Land of America. Please give a warm welcome for Doug Brickley.
1: Thank you all. Good evening. Thanks for coming out tonight. Um, He mentioned I'm a contributing editor at Vanity Fair And I just put up an article on an interview I had done with President Carter about trying to turn Georgia into Hollywood South um, when he invited uh, Burt Reynolds and all those movies in the 1970s to be filmed there. And today, the Black Panthers and all these films are being filmed there. If you get a chance to pull it up online, do it. just went up about an hour or so ago. Um, My book really was born, this book, Silent Spring Revolution, was born as a kid, my mom and dad were high school teachers. We had a trailer, Coachman trailer, and we'd go all over the United States visiting national parks and monuments. Uh, today they call it Passport for the Parks, but um, that didn't exist then, but we would just log them. We'd go to the Everglades and we'd go to Grand Canyon, maybe Olympic National Park, or we'd go to uh, the Tetons and go to Arcadia. And I had asthma as a kid. And I had read a biography of Theodore Roosevelt, how he struggled with asthma. So I identified with that when I read a child's you know a biography for young people. And wherever we went around the country, I'd pull up a brochure, and somehow Theodore Roosevelt created it. He saved 234 million acres of wild America from 1901 to 1909. He did it with all different mechanisms. As you all know, a national park has to go through Congress. So he pushed ones like Prater Lake in Oregon or Mesa Verde in Colorado, Wind Cave, South Dakota. But he also uh, grabbed a hold of the Antiquities Act of 1906 uh, and applied it to the Grand Canyon. They were going to mine the Grand Canyon for zinc, obestus, and copper. And TR said, leave the Grand Canyon alone. Man will only mar it. Um, The Senate wanted to go forward and allow it to be um, mined and and used for forestry and other reasons. Um, And Roosevelt ended up using this Antiquities Act, which was really meant for pottery and Native American artifacts for about, you know, an acre. And uh, he applies it to what's today a million acre park uh, under executive order. And he would do that to save redwood trees Amir and mere woods. that executive power of T r, you know, uh, is translated our modern times, Barack Obama used the antiquities Act uh, with regularity to save remnant places of of either of historic scenic or natural places that need preservation. But the point is, I wrote a book called The Wilderness Warrior on Theodore Roosevelt because when I had kids, I wanted my three kids to go on road trips around America too. And I reenacted what my parents did to me and I thought how clever I am, I'll get to do Theodore Roosevelt, It'll give me an opportunity to go visit the Redwoods or to you know, go to um, Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And I, when I was writing that book, the wilderness Warrior, I realized that it was really the first wave, there are three great waves of environmentalism in the United States. Now, the word was conservation for simple reasons. I'm just going to use the word the environment today, um, you know, so I don't get into a difference between utilitarian and a conservationist and a proto-environmentalist and a deep ecologist and I don't mind doing that in a Q&A if somebody wants to go there, but just for the purposes of this lecture, um, let's talk about three waves of environmentalism. Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, he created the National Forest Service or, or, um, also. Second wave, I then did the same thing, and that was FDR and the Civilian Conservation Corps, and that is from 1932. To, or to 1933 to 1945, FDR and the CCC um, established and um, planted, I should say, nearly 3 billion trees. Billion. That's how denuded our landscape was. We think of the Great Depression as being a stock market crash, but our entire American landscape had been overfarmed. we didn't do scientific forestry, we drained wetlands, we shot out all the game, And so there became this second wave environmental movement during FDR's New Deal. And in fact, FDR is the progenitor of 800 state parks and national parks of Shenandoah, where he came in 1936 here in Virginia. Um, and, And I wrote that book, and I wanted to finish a trilogy. And the third wave is the 1960s, or what I call the long 60s. Um, And it, it I wanted it the long 60s to go what I thought it would be when I started the book was 1960 to 1973 but in fact and the reason why the book is so fat is It had to begin when I did the research. It really began in 1945 I'm gonna get to I'm gonna walk you through all of this third wave. Let me just tell you in 73 The late 73, with Nixon in the White House, do you know what the Endangered Species Act passed by in the Senate? 92 to nothing. To save alligators, condor, eagles, 92 to nothing. And it's a very progressive law, the endangered species. How did our country get to the fact that both parties would go 92 to nothing for endangered species? Um, And after that boom, almost coinciding with it was the Arab oil embargo of 73, gasoline, petroleum issues, the need for energy independence, a counterpunch from oil, gas extraction um, companies to say that the environmentalists have gone too far. But it really did this, this, what I'm suggesting is a revolution, a third wave, went from 45 to 73. It began in 45 after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because we all know uh, the value of winning the war and, and, and being the only time a country in world history had a nuclear monopoly, the United States, 1945 to 49. We were it. The bomb, you know, USA, we had the technology, And so it was a big part of of national pride during the Truman years that we had the atomic bomb. But there became dissenters of of anything nuclear, and particularly nuclear testing. And those dissenters were in the public, they tended to be public scientists. And the first, or journalist, but the first the first real critic of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was a man named Norman Cousins, who was the editor for Saturday Literary Review. And he wrote immediately an essay called Is Man Obsolete? Is the birth of the atomic age mean we are headed for doom? And he, he, he was questioning that. What are the moral implications of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? What does the fallout and radiation mean in the end? And you had writers like John Hershey in The New Yorker who went to Japan and showed people skin all burned and melting and radiation sickness. And is this a weapon that if a weapon can't be used and it's going to destroy the planet, how do we put it back in the bottle? And, um, and I mentioned Norm Cousins, and I'm not going to talk about him more today, uh, except to say that he went on in the 50s to found SANE a group opposing nuclear testing because we were blowing up nuclear bombs willy-nilly in the Nevada desert at the Proving Ground there. From 1945 to 1992, the United States detonated 1,054 nuclear weapons in our testing program. And when we were blowing them up in Nevada, it wasn't just the people getting downwinders, getting sick, meaning Navajo or... Um, or um, Mexican-Americans or poor uh, ranchers and and backcountry people, the wind blew the fallout everywhere. I mean, it, it went all over the country. And so Norman Cousins followed that issue all the way through to going to visit Dr. Albert Schweitzer in Africa, a Nobel Prize winner, to get Schweitzer to go on Radio Oslo and denounce nuclear testing by the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union. And you know who loved Norman Cousins? John F. Kennedy. Kennedy loved the Saturday Literary Review. Kennedy was suspicious about Nagasaki. Kennedy was a cold warrior who wanted to win the Cold War. Do not mistake that. But Kennedy understood that, particularly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, that we could could be on the eve of nuclear annihilation. And Cousins, sticking with that issue, got to Kennedy, and Kennedy sent him as a secret envoy to meet with Khrushchev and the Pope. And out of that became the greatest accomplishment of Kennedy's presidency, the nuclear test ban treaty between Great Britain and Russia. And where all three countries agreed, no more atmospheric testing, no more underwater testing. You can only test underground. Underground has its own problems. But you can see that that issue, it's a great triumph for Kennedy, but it's a a lobby that Norman Cousins, you know who was the big representative on saying picketing, no more nuclear testing, Coretta Scott King. So it was a movement. To stop nuclear testing on uh, and, and, and so the, the 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 thing that won the war, the bomb, is now being seen by a lot of people as having deep ecological and human health problems and, and devastation to wildlife. Um out of that wave of the anti-nuclear movement, that's one one thing that's emerging from 45 to let's say 60. Um, three for John F. Kennedy at the time it was death. That's one big thing: anti-nukes. Second, it was another miracle of World War II: DDT pesticides. John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon—all served in the Pacific. You, anybody in the Pacific, got sprayed with DDT. DDT was a miracle. You know, FDR, we used to say, Dr. New Deal has become Dr. Win the War. And in the effort to win the war in the Pacific, to be able to kill mosquitoes and lice and ticks, and, and it, was, it was massive. And we would do aerial applications of it to Guam or Iwo Jima or wherever. And wherever we were at, it was a part and parcel with the Pacific War experience. And it was so popular because it killed insects that it was massively adopted by big ag, by agriculture during the Truman years. Crop planes went everywhere, spraying DDT over crops, anywhere, cotton, peanuts, it didn't matter. Go out to San Joaquin Valley in California or go to where Jimmy Carter was at in Sumter County, Georgia. Do you know Carter left for the Navy in World War II? So the years of the heavy DDT and pesticide spraying, he wasn't there in Georgia at Plains, but you know who it was? His mother who died of pancreatic cancer, his father who died of pancreatic cancer, his sister Ruth who died of pancreatic cancer, his sister Gloria who died of uh, pancreatic cancer, his brother Billy who died of pancreatic cancer. There cancer clusters around America and places with heavy use, unregulated use of these pesticides were wrecking havoc on wildlife, agriculture, human health. And one of the big people that started worrying about this was Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson was also against nuclear testing. But Rachel Carson, in particular, her, her, she was from Springdale, Pennsylvania, she saw the Allegheny River destroyed. There were glue factories and the like that had poisoned it, the landscape. She ended up loving the natural world, Henry David Thoreau and naturalism and collecting, writing about birds, great birder. Um, and she had a penchant for science. And she went to Chatham's um, School for Women, today Chatham University at Pittsburgh. And there she had a very prescient um, um, professor who said, look, you're like Darwin in a sense. I mean, you do science well, biology, and you write like an angel. Um, you can make that your life marrying those two the way Darwin did or the way Thoreau did or the way you know, uh, uh, William Bebe or uh, others did. And she went to Woods Hole, which is by Cape Cod. It was the Great Oceanographic Study Marine Center, Woods Hole still is. Uh, but you know, there's more competition today. You have, you know, university of Miami and Scripps and Texas, and there are all sorts of great marine places for young people to study. But Woods Hall was it. And she went there. She got an early interest in migratory eels because she couldn't believe how an eel would like birds would migrate from Africa across the ocean and end up in a river in Pennsylvania. And then she started doing her advanced degree in biology at and zoology at Johns Hopkins. She got hired in 1940 by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. She started writing radio scripts during World War II about the ocean, about fish stocks, shad and cod, on and on. She started writing a series, you know, we think of FDR and the New Deal with WPA guides and the like. Well, there was a series called Conservation in Action in which Rachel Carson would write or find somebody to write a guidebook for all of our nat- natural or our U.S. wildlife refuges. Theodore Roosevelt created 51 federal bird reservations, which gave basically birth to fish and wildlife. You guys all today own over 550 national wildlife refuges. America, we've done that much to start saving these habitats and uh, of our, our, our animal life and, and, and flora and fauna. But Carson, um, when she was in government, the U.S. government with Fish and Wildlife started, there was a place FDR created called Pawtuxent, Maryland. And it's still there. But at Pawtuxent is a place that our taxpayer dollars go to, so you might as well know about it because it's a good thing we've got it. They test wildlife there. I mean, they'll test a new chemical somebody makes and how is it affecting fish or birds or rats or whatever the case may be to make sure that we're not introducing toxins into our our, um, atmosphere or water supply. Look at what's going on in East Palestine right now in Ohio, the fear of all of that. Um, And so what was coming out of the shop at and the scientists there were saying, "Uh uh-oh, DDT ain't no miracle. Yes, it's amazing for malarial diseases, but spray like we're spraying it, it's going to affect human health, and it's certainly thinning the eggs of birds, and it's poisoning fish, and we're going to have to find a way to regulate it in a really serious way, or ban it. Uh, and Carson wrote an article that got rejected for Reader's Digest, which was a big deal. She wanted to go to a big audience, warning, warning, stop using DDT, It got rejected. And she went on to writing her gorgeous trilogy of sea books. Has anybody here ever read a book about the oceans by Rachel Carson? A few of you. I highly recommend it. It's, it's like eating ice cream. There are beautiful books about our shorelines. She loved Virginia shore. She went all of um, Buford, um, North Carolina. She was down in Georgia. She was at Florida, but her big place was Cape Cod and particularly Maine, uh, where she lived in her summers. She writes beautiful books that were mega bestsellers. In the 1950s, Rachel Carson was the biggest ocean person. Today, her student, Person who worships her is still around. Sylvia Earle on oceans, and then Jacques Cousteau started coming into the mix. But Rachel Carson—I mean, I get on the bestseller list for a few weeks, and it's a big deal. She'd be on for like you know sixty-seven weeks, thirty-six weeks, you know, just so it was a big thing. Rachel Carson in the fifties, and she had, she just wrote about oceans. But something happened in the late 50s that that made her turn to the pesticide issue. A, anybody here of a certain age will remember uh, a Dr. Benjamin Spock. Dr. Spock's sister, Marjorie, owned a massive farm, uh, uh, a organic farm in Suffolk County, Long Island. And in Suffolk County, she wanted to be wanted no no chemicals on her produce. Pretty commonplace in the world of whole foods today. It's not an unusual thought, but it was a little unusual in the late fifties. That without close to New York City, she wanted a big organic farm and was running it. And yet, the U. United States Department of Agriculture and Suffolk County mosquito control would spray DDT. And she sues and says, I've had my right as an organic farmer taken from me. It goes to the Supreme Court. And you can see why. It becomes really interesting law. Like, what is the, I own this, your home. What do you, how far up do you own what goes on above your house? And can somebody spray something down on you? And, and it's just by nature a fascinating legal conundrum. And she loses in the Supreme Court but in her loss a supreme court justice william o' douglas writes a biting dissent saying that spock has every right in, in, to have an organic farm and the federal government or states have no right to putting poison chemicals on people's farmlands that it would have to be an individual choice not a collective choice because uh, at any rate, it went everywhere His at Douglas's And Rachel Carson is the great inheritor of two Santa Claus bundles of literature. One is all the stuff, the whistleblowers, if you like, from Pawtuxet, who've got reports, data, you know, reams of information that they give her as a writer and a former government employee. And she inherits all of Marjorie Spock's Lee, you know, imagine all the, the work that was ginned up for a big Supreme Court case. She's got both mother loads there. And in the late 50s, she starts writing a book about how damaging DDT is. And at the same time, she was suffering from breast cancer. So she would go to Cleveland Clinic, doctors, Mayo, everything. And it metastasized. Her radiation treatments weren't working. She lost all of her hair. She wore a wig and she ha- had did not have a good prognosis. So she was racing against the clock to finish her book, Silent Spring. And um, in it, uh, it, it, she gets it done in um, early 1962. And you know who's the person backing it all the way? William O. Douglas, Supreme Court Justice. Douglas is going to disseminate it far and wide. Douglas wants revenge on the pesticides and chemical industry. Douglas goes so far as to say, I'm going to bend the law in favor as justice, not as an ex-justice. He writes his friend at Yale, I'm going to bend the law in favor of the environment and against the corporation. This is not what a Supreme Court justice should be writing. Uh, I mean, no matter how you feel, you might say, Yes, good for Douglas, but you know, it's, it, it's a. And it, without an EPA or Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act, yet Douglas's Supreme Court office became a clearinghouse for all sorts of environmental groups. If some of you were a NIMBY group here in Richmond and didn't want a factory built near your neighborhood, you, you the best you could do in America would be to bring it to Justice Douglas's attention. Um, and Douglas made big media history on a third wave. I've given you DDT. Nuclear, third thing, which uh, which we call the wilderness movement, but it was about more open space, less development, less um, giving up uh, beautiful scenic places for cars and roads and, and thoroughfares and the like. And Douglas saves the CNO Canal from Georgetown to Cumberland, Maryland. He walks 186 miles as Supreme Court Justice goading people and bringing national attention no road should come we should be able to hike the CNO canal they were going to build a turnpike kind of road right along the potomac and douglas's big hike garners attention the washington post that was pro road suddenly turns anti the road eisenhower At the end of his presidency, when he demilitarized Antarctica and created the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, you hear about in the press a lot, Eisenhower sided with Douglas, and they ended up making the Sino Canal a historic um, walkway, and the road got got nixed. And so Douglas is feeling success. And in early sixty, he writes a children's book on John Muir. He writes two big books called My Wilderness. It's Douglas, a, a liberal New Deal Supreme Court justice who convinced Eisenhower to save the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge on his way out of office. Um, and um, Douglas is like a brother, father, and uncle to the Kennedy family. Uh, William O. Douglas was made as he came from Yakima, Washington. He had polio as a kid. He learned to hike out there in, in the Pacific Northwest. He was brilliant. He went to Whitman College, ended up kind of hoboing around the country. Got to Columbia, and 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 uh, and became a wizard at law school. Became a youngest Sterling professor at law ever at Yale, and was discovered by by uh, first Joe Kennedy in 1933, the John F. Kennedy's father. They put Douglas on what he was good at. What is when our stock market crashed, we created a security exchange commission on Wall Street in '33 to look at people that are doing fake bankruptcies and looking for federal monies. Douglas went after all the companies. Look, Who's lying? Who's making up? This was his forte. And Joe Kennedy, who was a Republican at heart, said, I don't know what's wrong with me. The only two people I like in public life are... Uh, two Democrats, Bill Douglas and my son. Douglas was hardy and tough, kind of little pugnacious, like James Cagney kind of guy. And they he became adopted by the Kennedy family so much so that Robert F. Kennedy would go all over with Douglas. In fact, went to Siberia with Bill Douglas, hiked all over Siberia, RFK in 50s. Nobody went to Siberia hiking. Cold war's on, and there's Bobby and and Bill Douglas. And in fact, Bobby Kennedy got about 104-degree fever in Siberia and was laying there sweating in a in like a primitive hut. And that more next morning, while he's burning up with fever, Douglas straps his backpack on and says that this is where we park company, Bobby, and left him there. And Ethel Kennedy, who I interviewed for my book, told me, oh, that he left her, her, her husband there to die. She was ticked. Wouldn't talk to him for years, Bill Douglas, thought he, of course, recovers, and Bobby never held it against him. But Bill Douglas comes up with the idea of the Peace Corps, and he's part of the new frontier. It's just he's in the Supreme Court, okay? Um, And so when Douglas is manipulating Rachel Carson, she just finishes her book. He knows she has cancer. He grabs the manuscript and he gets it disseminated. The New Yorker publishes it in early 62 before the book comes out in excerpts. Holy hell breaks loose, front page of newspapers, Rachel Carson versus the entire chemical industry. Because with the, it wasn't about just DDT. What the chemical industries were worried about is federal regulation. What They did not want to be regulated because they, suddenly if you start getting federal laws and standards, that's just going to hurt the bottom line. And John F. Kennedy at a podium when asked about the New Yorker ass, essays out there and said, I'm looking into Ms. Carson's research. And, um, and he puts a scientific advisory panel together and they come up with the commissioner paper that she's right, that DDT, it was fact-checked at the New Yorker, her science is right. Uh, The chemical industry thought bull, and boom, it's at loggerheads. Now, Silent Spring in 62 is a revolutionary book. Seldom in US history does a book change our, our social consciousness. Thomas Paine's Common Sense did that in the American Revolution. One could argue Harriet Beecher Stowe, you know, the Civil War era. Uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle on meatpacking factories, you know, of uh, uh, when Theodore Roosevelt was president. There are these moments, there are others, when a book just, for whatever reason, just ignites something. And Silent Spring did that because Rachel Carson is doing, saying something different than my first two books, The Wilderness Warrior on TR and FDR. Rachel Carson is telling you, and you, and you, your grandkids or children are getting sick if they go in a river, if they play in their backyard, it may be sprayed with pesticides. Your 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 dog may be getting sick because he ate grass that had been sprayed. Your it, she connects old style, let's call it national park, you know, outdoor glory naturalist stuff to public health. And that opens the the net. Now, a lot of people are caring about the environment in a new way because it's affecting them. Not about saving a hunk of rock in Canyonlands of Utah. It's about, I want my backyard in Richmond not to be contaminated. And as you know, um, John F. Kennedy gets killed in Dallas in, in 63 and Rachel Carson dies in 64. Um, and, but there, that the combo blew things up, and I gave you those three strands: DDT, nuclear, wilderness. The idea of wilderness lobby; those people were uh, started moving towards no roads on land. Lyndon Johnson in '64 will put 9.1 million acres of roadless wilderness. If you grab a map and look, you'll see out west all some of them are the size of states. No roads are allowed. Because the idea is roads bring logging, they bring uh, they bring electricity. We're going to keep some of America frontier primitive. That passes, I said in '64, the Wilderness Act, but that was being pushed by this wilderness lobby. That Kennedy embraces, as I mentioned, you. Kennedy embraced anti nuclear testing. Kennedy embraced the Silent Spring movement. Kennedy embraces the wilderness movement, and a fourth. Seashore protection. Kennedy was a show horse senator. He was not a workhorse. He's a playboy senator. Is not is 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 a true about him. Bright, brilliant, loved foreign affairs, but he didn't like to do a lot of heavy legislative lifting. But he did. Bill Douglas took schooled him and said, "Jack, the problem of you is you never sleep on the ground." And um, and you got to find a, an environmental conservation issue. You're going to be in the Senate, be a leader. And Kennedy grabbed onto the seashore preservation because he had a place he loved, Cape Cod, Hyannisport. Um, the Kennedy family was enthralled with Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Rose Kennedy, the mother, was was raised in Concord, Massachusetts, and the kids all learn to swim in Walden Pond. She was such a Thoreauvian that went, later in life, she worked as undercover for the CIA to go see if Thoreau was being carried in the libraries of Russia. She was a leader in the Save Cape Cod National Seashore Movement. And it takes place in the mid 50s when the government reports call our vanishing shorelines, which is we have no open beaches in America anymore. It's all going to be like, you know, Miami Beach or the Jerseyization of boardwalks, or people are going to build condominiums or housing developments right on the ocean. There'll be no more. It's like the Wilderness Act, no more seashore in its natural state. Kennedy's hobby horse in that. And as president, he prioritizes Cape Cod and he passes. Kennedy gets done Cape Cod National Seashore in Massachusetts, Padre Island in Texas on the Gulf, Point Reyes, which is Marin County, California. Guys, these are expensive real estate. This is not a president going to the Brooks Range of Alaska and putting a million acres of rock. These are where people are. These are the hot real estate value. And they found very innovative ways. Like if you go to Cape Cod National Seashore to save the dunes and have Turo and Wellfleet and Town, you know, live amongst the dunes. And they did the same at Padre and they did the same at Point Reyes. So this seashore movement's coming in. Kennedy had his list of them. And in death, he got those done while he was alive, but in death, they start getting done by Lyndon Johnson. Fire Island National Seashore, Azateek in Virginia, Maryland, um, Cumberland Island in Georgia. There are a lot of them. And uh, and even at Cape Canaveral where Kenny's going to space, they created a national wildlife refuge connected on the government land to Cape Canaveral to try to have a a, a natural imprint on some of that pretty uh, section of Florida. Um, Johnson when the environmental community, these groups starting to coordinate together, they didn't know what to think of Lyndon. Because Lyndon was a big damn guy. Big damn. And, and And good for him. I mean, what would we have done in the Depression without the Tennessee Valley Authority of FDR to electrify the South or the Grand Coulee Dam? But it's also fair to say by the time Kennedy's killed in Dallas that many politicians had abused the need for a dam in their district to get pork money. We want 50 million for an unnecessary dam. We're damning, 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 everything, channelizing everything. And so they um the the hope was that Lyndon would change colors, and he did. And he changed colors because with Lyndon, you got Ladybird. As a couple, Lyndon and Lady Bird are probably more, very undersung environmental heroes. Um, it's hard to give Lyndon Johnson that credit when you think in the Vietnam War, we're using Agent Orange and defoliants to kill jungles in Southeast Asia, right? I mean, he, LBJ had no global sense of environment. Theodore Roosevelt would talk about the world as ecosystems of being one pulsing biological organism, all interconnected. Lyndon thought a bit about America, American wilderness, American frontier values, American conservation, rancher, land stewardship. But as Kennedy's had Cape Cod as their Walden, I'd ask everyone in the audience, if you come up for a book signing afterwards, I'll ask you all this question: What is your Walden Pond? Which means, what place in the natural world, since you were a child to today, has touched you in a way that you might even call spiritual? It just—it could be a farm, it could be a, a place that you go to walk the beach, it could be a waterfall, a canyon, it could be anything. But most of us have something that we really treasure. When we go back, when we're hit a certain age and think of our life, we say, "Wow, that." My memories there are so strong. Um, Lyndon had that; he absolutely loved the Pedernales River of the Texas Hill Country, where his ranch was. It's a beautiful river. I've got to hike along it, and it's even today just beautiful. And Lady Bird grew up on Louisiana border and fell in love with what we call the Big Thicket area, but the cypress trees and the swamps and the bayou and the uh, the exotic birds, and she became a real naturalist. Linden was a, a, a rancher who wanted to make sure his property was properly maintained. But the power of the two of them in the 60s did a lot of great things. One was that river. Johnson, on his own idea, yes, there were some murmurs, and a couple of guys named the Craigheads wrote an article about it, and Frank Church at Idaho had been pro-damo, was thinking of saving some wild rivers in Idaho. But it's Lyndon who decides. I'm going to put in a State of the Union that we're going to have wild and scenic rivers. That hunks of big hunks of river in America will not be dammed. So other generations can experience a pristine river river riverine ecology. Uh, and he he fought for it. And by '68, he got the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act done. And now we have hundreds of rivers that stretches that you can have for whitewater rafting. You have for fishing, it's just not commercialized part hunks and stretches of rivers. In Alaska and Oregon, there's a lot of it. Um, those states in particular, and Washington, are really into their wild and scenic rivers. Um, less so on the east, but nevertheless, there are quite a few. Johnson also does the Appalachian Trail. He does the Pacific Crest Trail. He does the National Trails Act, saving all of the trail systems of America as part of the Great Society. Johnson does air quality acts and his whole voting rights and poverty initiatives are looking at a simple question. Why do people of color get all the toxic debris dumped in their neighborhoods? All the waste from society where where poor people live. Um, And in the same time Lyndon Johnson's talking about that, you know who's the big leader against pesticides and DDT? Cesar Chavez. United Farm Workers Union They're fighting out there. They're seeing Mexican Americans, they're fighting, and and Filipino um, agriculture workers getting deformed, ill, cancer from these blanket sprayings of the California agriculture. So Chavez is coming in, and today we call it environmental justice, is the phrase. But Chavez and Dolores Huerta and others out there were, were ringing that bell. And you know who he had to fast? during his uh, boycott strike, Cesar Chavez, and you know came and broke the fast with Chavez, Robert F. Kennedy, giving Cesar Chavez a communion wafer to break the fast. Do you realize Robert F. Kennedy was a leader in the Save the Hudson River movement in the 60s? Scenic Hudson stopped Con Edison from building a plan on the Hudson River. Out in the 60s in California, Sierra Club and others stopped a Pacific electric company from building a nuclear power campus on the San Andreas Fault. I have mixed feelings about nuclear energy and it's a larger conversation in a contemporary realm of our energy needs. I just will tell you Pacific made a horrible mistake picking to put a little on the San San Andreas Fault because the San Francisco newspapers, the not on my backyard crowd. I mean, finally, Secretary. Of, of interior Udall went out and said, All right, we're not building a nuclear power plant on a major fault line. Uh, and but when you win victories, guys, like Douglas wins no roads, Douglas didn't just win the CNO Canal, flush with victory. Douglas stops a dam in Kentucky. He goes to Washington and does roads, no roads on parts of Washington State, another victory. He goes down the Buffalo River in the 60s in Arkansas to save it as a national river, no damming uh, and no construction on it. And people protesting put barbed wire across it so kayakers couldn't come down. There they they were canoers shot at. And there's Bill Douglas going down the, um, the Buffalo River and the painter Thomas Hart Benton joining that movement in Arkansas. Um, so there, the, the, the thing that made this Silent Spring Revolution work is victory, 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 victory. You know, so maybe if that nuclear power plant had been built by Sacramento or something, they would have gone up. But the fact that they picked the wrong location, it gave the environmentalists a big, a big win, and it spread, no nuclear plants. Um, so it was a, a real national movement growing. And, you know, I, I don't have time to tell you other Johnson parks with Stuart Udall, but they saved, you know, Canyonlands National Park in Utah, the North Cascades in Washington. Redwood, Lady Bird was all about the Redwood grows up in Northern California's Redwood National Park. Lady Bird Johnson is talking about no, no, keeping a kind of a extension of what used to be the city beautiful movement. Keep your cities clean, no garbage. Recycling, bottles being returned. Argon invented that whole get your, you know, the bottles. Uh, today, even here, there'll be recycling bins. You know, this is all happening. And Ladybird's talking about wildflowers along roads and let's make our highways more scenic and uh, worried about billboards going up and historical preservation. The, you know, when you see all these plaques of the historical registry and National Historic Site, that's the John coming out of uh, Lyndon and Ladybird's initiatives. Um, 68, Johnson can't run because of the Vietnam War. And incidentally, guys, before I mention that, on the nuclear no testing issue, Martin Luther King Jr. said this in many different iterations What good does it do to integrate a lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina? If the milk you're getting served has strontium ninety in it, meaning the contaminants from nuclear testing, so it connects Dr. King and, and and Coretta Scott King. I interviewed Andy Young, John Lewis. This was all, you know, John Lewis would tell me before he passed. You know, part of the Montgomery bus boycott. We didn't like sitting in the back of the bus because all the diesel fumes. They weren't air conditioned. Would blow right in. You'd be sitting in the back, breathing in diesel. If you were a uh, um, African American or a Black American back of a bus, so all these things are kind of interconnected. Sixty-eight Vietnam Johnson can't run, and Bobby Kennedy's killed. Johnson was very angry that environmentalists didn't love him. Uh, he had stopped damming of the Colorado River on um, in Arizona. But it was really goaded by the Sierra Club's David Brower, executive director, who took out full-page ads in the New York Times saying, "Would would you flood the 16th chapel? And he kept buying these ads. And when Brower would do them, they had clippings. You'd write the president, clip, write the president in. And all these Americans started saying, don't ruin the Grand Canyon, it wouldn't have quite ruined the Grand Canyon if the dam came in. It was north of the park line, but it would have changed the terrain and would have risen the water levels and, you know, but another victory. But um, by with Vietnam, Johnson doesn't run in 68. Bobby Kennedy's killed. And in and, and a year that classics of conservation or environmental literature come out, Stuart Brand's The Whole Earth Catalog. Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire, Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb. The big thing that occurred with going to the moon, by all the astronauts were uh, heading to the moon, all but Neil Armstrong said something of this effect. They thought their mission was to the moon, with 12 moonwalkers. But when they got to the moon, it was what they were trained to think it was. You know, nothing there. Kicking up some dust, making boot marks. What shocked them was seeing lonely planet earth Blue-white, you know, the mar- blue marble it was called just sitting there in this dark, you know um, Cosmos and realizing how all alone we all are and that there was no lines of North Vietnam or South Vietnam It's just the earth and um, and and so it, 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 Walter Cronkite started using that shot Earthrise, taken by astronaut Bill Anders, as his bumper slide for the CBS Evening News, and CBS is starting to do regular environmental coverage. And it goes uh, color TV. Cronkite and and uh, Ch- uh, Brink, Huntley Brinkley and all that by is sixty seven is in color, and so people are seeing dead fish, dirty rivers, and all on their screens. How did that? year of 68, Nixon wins. Nixon had no Walden Pond. He had no Pedernales River and Cape Cod. There was no emotions of that height and degree. But yet Nixon was an important and significant environmental president because Once Nixon won, he, look, he didn't know much about it. You couldn't be in California politics without knowing about, you know, national parks, federal lands, people on the ocean. So he was, he was, he's a very smart man, Nixon, very literate on that. But when his thing, it was oil, gas, big agriculture, Chavez farm workers movement was the left and he's the right. Um, But he did something smart in 68 knowing he didn't know all the environmental answers the press wanted he hired john ehrlichman to be his domestic advisor to deal with all things environment anybody who remembers john ehrlichman will remember him for watergate and going to prison but you probably don't know about john ehrlichman he went to law school at ucla ended up setting up a law practice in seattle and was one of the top environmental lawyers before that term was even used in america and his law firm ehrlichman's in seattle would basically really made their money on a wealthy nimby people particularly he shot was able his law firm to stop an aluminum plant from being built where people didn't want it to save the beauty of puget sound nixon went up and encountered ehrlichman in the early 60s after nixon lost to john f kennedy And Ehrlichman took Nixon all around and showed him how beautiful the waterways were around Seattle. And it was a rare breed, a kind of a conservative in some ways, environmental Republican. And Nixon thought perfect. And he has Ehrlichman in the White House, Nixon's president, eight days. And the Santa Barbara oil spill happens. And it's brought on that TV screen. And it shows paradise Santa Barbara, in goo. In fact, the protest group was get the oil out, goo. But it was just lapping onto the shores, birds trapped, media doing close-ups on, you know, wildlife in peril. Uh, And um, Nixon at first did just what happened in East Palestine. There's kind of a, well, let's just not, there weren't human deaths, fatalities with the spill. Let's minimize it a little bit. Let's say, look, we'll get it cleaned up and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But luckily for Nixon, his, his just days in the job, Secretary of Interior Walter Hickel went to the beaches of California, called the White House and said, do not minimize. Tell people how bad it is because it's bad. It's a real ugly spill and the visual evidence is here and you will get blamed for it. We've only been in pre in eight days. Yeah, nobody fair could blame Nixon for the Santa Barbara oil spill. OK, I mean, so don't don't wound yourself. And Nixon weathered through that. He went to Santa Barbara. He went to the beach. He said the right things. Then in the summer of 69. Right when Neil Armstrong goes to the moon. Time magazine should be t- ballyhooing Buzz Aldrin. And instead, it's Cuyahoga River on fire. In an issue in Ohio. The Great River that leads into Lake Erie—that's part of industrial Cleveland. Well, if you dropped a match on the water, off it would go. And that wasn't the only river on fire. The Rouge River in Michigan. There are many, but the uh, Cuyahoga became a symbol. And um, and Nixon paid close notice. My God, the media is going crazy now. Rivers on, and I'm president. Spills, rivers on fire, dirty air—you couldn't breathe in L.A. And, you know, New York smog alerts and, you know, and that fall of 69, right after Cuyahoga, a senator named um, Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin is in Seattle and hatches the idea of a teach-in for 1970, which will be Earth Day, April 22nd, 1970. Gaylord Nelson was a real, like a perfect conservation rating He is the person who fought and got 22 islands of Wisconsin declared the Apostle Islands National Park. It's up there. If you look, you'll see it's called the Gaylord Nelson Wilderness today. Uh, And Nelson started organizing Earth Day. And Nixon's hearing about these teach-ins at colleges in 1970. And he's connecting it to the Vietnam War protest. And I asked myself a question, how do all these colleges get money and open businesses everywhere for Earth Day? There was a funder. It wasn't George Soros, just a joke. It was, it was Walter Ruther of the United Auto Workers who was fighting in the 60s and early 70s. Labor in the environment were intertwined and Ruther was saying, Blue-collar factory workers in Detroit don't have the money to go to Yosemite. They need local hunting, fishing, waters, recreation near where our workers are. And Ruth was a true environmental believer. So Nixon's now thinking, I- I'm going to steal the issue from the-, the Democrats. Environment's going. And he makes a deal with Ehrlichman. Look, I'll sign something really big if Ed Muskie, the Senator of Maine, has nothing to do with it. (laughs) The man who kept the enemies list, Nixon, had one enemy above all other enemies and that was Ed Muskie, he hated him. He hated Muskie because Muskie was daily criticizing Nixon's foreign policy. He hated Muskie because it was his likely rival in 1972 presidential election. He hated Muskie because While Gaylord Nelson was really a kind of um, environmental conservation guy from Wisconsin, he thought Muskie was faking it, that he's for clean air and clean water, uh, hogging cameras for the media every day. And most Democrats were attacking Nixon in 69, and many were against the Vietnam War. Ted Kennedy, Eugene McCarthy, (laughs) you know, um, Gaylord Nelson, Frank Church, the list is just almost all a lot. But one big senator stayed with Nixon on Vietnam, a Democrat, Scoop Jackson of Washington State. Scoop knew Ehrlichman from Seattle, and Scoop had a crackerjack legal staff. And so Nixon said, if Scoop does it, the paperwork gets all the cleared, I'll sign it. And on January 1, 1970, New Year's Day, shocking the press, on a, right before the football games at the Western White House in California, overlooking the Pacific, where the previous year was the Santa Barbara oil spill, Nixon signs NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. NEPA may not mean a lot to you if you're not really into this stuff, but all of you are affected by NEPA. You can't, NEPA, Nixon signs that everything has to have an environmental impact statement. So if the U.S. government's going to build a new agriculture building, what's the environmental impact statement? If you're building a, a you know, something here in Richmond, what's the environmental impact statement? By Nixon signing it, it gives birth to environmental law. Because now you, you're there are jobs in environmental law. It's, you're just not going to work for a nonprofit or a fish and wildlife group. You can work for Exxon and be an environmental lawyer, or Walmart today, or you know, pick your company. You got environmental lawyers on everything, everywhere, and it becomes what today uh, a Trump movement wants to unwind NEPA because that environmental impacts statement had a much wider, um, much wider impact than was even known at the time of Nixon signing it, April twenty. Nixon gives. Uh, a third of his State of the Union on the environment. He out tr TR on the environment in 1970. And on that first Earth Day, Nixon's worried it's a communist pinko plot. He's just feeling Ruther's funding it. The anti-war movement's going on. I'm being mocked by the left. This Earth Day is going to turn into college campuses mocking me, Richard M. Nixon. But he's not not 100% sure how to play Earth Day. So he plants a tree on the White House with Pat Nixon. There's great photos. They're planting their tree on Earth Day. He gives all of his Interior Department employees the day off to be part of the teach-in. And he has the FBI do illegal wiretapping and surveillance of the student groups um, to see if they were communist subversives, um, anti-war radicals. And one of the funnier reports that came out of Nixon's investigation into that Earth Day was Ehrlichman had a buddy named Pete McCloskey, a Republican congressman from California. And um, Ehrlichman, or McCloskey, uh, Ehrlichman got a hold of McCloskey and told him, I got to go see the boss now and tell him that the Earth Day, there were no subversives or radicals, but there was some, some people... Um, um deep kissing and playing frisbee and smoking some pot. and that was about it. You know, uh, it, it, there was it wasn't part of a larger. it was kind of a spontaneous thing Earth Day. The media ate it up. And Nixon's thinking, wow, I not only survived Earth Day, this environmental thing's a winning issue. I'm co-opting it from the Democrats. I'm not getting the credit I deserve, but I'm a leader on it. And that summer of 1970, Richard Nixon and Ehrlichman create, and others, Russell Train and, you know, obviously others, uh, create the Environmental Protection Agency out of the White House, executive order, Uh, and it opens its doors in December 1970. And if we were going to rename the EPA, I suggested it be renamed, be named after our first EPA head, William Ruckel's house from Indiana, conservative Republican, ended up moving to Seattle, fighting to protect salmon fisheries up there and, and keeping Puget Bay clean. But um, Ruckelshaus was an honest first head of the EPA. And you know who bans DDT? Ruckelshaus and Nixon. From 62 to 72 was a DDT war. And Nixon, under once Ruckelshaus saw all the info, he said, that's it. Nixon was worried. Nixon's telling his own first head of the EPA, I'm going to lose rancher votes. I'm going to lose these farmers. I'm going to lose, you know, this isn't great politics. The banning of the chemical industry is going to hate my guts now. Um, But he did it. And um, Nixon would sign the Clean Air Act, uh, which we're still living on now in 1970. Our country did the Clean Water Act in 1972. Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, you know, NOAA, uh, the list is long. Uh, Nixon sides with the Sierra Club on projects like creating the Golden Gate Bridge of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area in California and Gateway National Recreation in New Jersey and uh, New York. Hence, by 73, where I began this lecture to tell you the Endangered Species Act, there was, uh, LBJ did a version of it, but it got expanded in, in 73, and it's really worked. I mean, we brought back all of these, uh, uh, many of the creatures from um, the brink of extinction. Uh, we did it. The American people did it. The 92 to nothing did it. It became bipartisan. There were big Republicans in my story, like John Salyer, the number one environmental congressman from Pennsylvania, conservative Republican outdoor conservationist, Walt Disney, making true life adventures to not look at coyotes or mountain lions as merely predators that ate sheep and cattle, but important parts of our American ecosystems. There are many Republicans join in the effort. That first Earth Day, you had artists joining it. Um, you know, I don't know if people realize Andy Warhol eventually did a whole series of endangered species. You can look it up online. Uh, Robert Rauschenberg, the great painter, did the first Earth Day poster. Songs started pouring out. Um, mercy me the ecology by marvin gay pete seeger singing his folk songs and taking a sloop up and down the hudson river you know neil young and 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 bands getting on the environmental bandwagon last evening i was with joni mitchell at the library of congress um and we honored her uh speaker mccarthy and and uh senator klobuchar and there's joni mitchell who wrote you know um they, they paid, you know, paid, they, they killed paradise and, you know, put up a parking lot she in her, in her songs. So, I mean, they was part of this era, you know, and, um, and so it, ever, they were all hands on deck through it. And I well now, it, it stopped in 73 and there was always now a look for a fourth wave When's the new wave? It's obviously going to be about climate change. It's about fossil fuels. It's global. It's about how do we do something if China and India don't? Um, it, it's about, um, you know, do our alternative energy really work? Uh, we haven't had the fourth wave. People thought when Al Gore did Inconvenient Truth and you had about eight senators in the cl- Republican climate senators, they're not there now. We're at that 50-50 juggernaut in our country. You're not going to get bipartisan legislation. I mean, um, Biden folded in climate stuff in, in his you know, expansive um, unified inflation bill. Um, so we're all talking about it and doing things, but that fourth wave has not happened. And that fourth wave is when all these components come together in us, the people, demand clean water, demand clean air, demand different standards. Uh, we give the people in power too much authority, but it's when the public rises and says enough. And you know now I'm seeing it happening in states. California is saying, no, you're not going to be able to sell um, uh, vehicles that are run on fossil fuels by 2035. Uh, our uh, Washington state's just joined that but we're nowhere near the time that way we can have a fourth wave. But you see with Greta and her, her appeal, how young people took to her. And I've been teaching for a long time, guys, the kids, young people in college, I'm at Rice university, but it's, I speak at college. They're really interested in the environment um, because they've been grown up with the, the baby boomer success of teaching ecology, earth science, you know, environmental stewardship, you know, there's an education going on in colleges about it. environmental law is a big field, um, but um, you know, it's going to be Generation Z or the next generation when a fourth wave will come, but it will, just as you saw with East Palestine, you know, suddenly things flashpoints happen, and and um, it's small there. It's been politicized. But people are going to say, uh, and I'll end by telling you, there is unity on what I'm talking about. Because if I go to a group of conservatives in Toledo, Ohio, where I spent my childhood, and I say, we should have the Maumee River clean, no more Chinese agricultural runoff killing the river. We want to protect Lake Erie, which is dying uh, and we have to keep our fishing and hunting lands um going, I'll get a cheer. There's nobody there that disagrees. I don't care who you're voting for. If I go to that same group or some and start talking the word environment a lot, people back off and say, oh, stalking horse for the Democrats. Um it, it's it's it, it, the word has been so politicized, environment. I'm not suggesting it's going away. I'm not saying it needs to be. I'm just saying that language matters and the way people perceive things. But I find a unity that everybody wants their kids to grow up like Rachel Carson did in a backyard that's clean in a river that you might be able to swim in, that when you catch a fish, you don't have to worry about its contamination. And uh, the public will come together as one. Uh, and and you have to keep hope. hope, in believing in that, because I've seen some young kids that get involved with the environment that are in despair, that you've given us a horrible planet, the planet's dying, it's too late on climate change, blah, 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 blah. and I always say, look, join a group, Get become a friend of the Shenandoah National Park, become a friend of a river, where it's a great impulse when you hear young people, that because they're saying, I love life, I love earth. I wanna protect things, I wanna be a st- steward. You wanna encourage that, but don't get yourself sick or depressed where you can't function because it's doomsdays coming tomorrow. We need we need upbeat, the thing I learned from the 60s and 70s is people had fun. They had fun changing the world. They had fun pushing for saving species. They had fun getting the air clean. They had fun getting let out of gasoline. I mean, the list is long, they had fun trying to create um, sewage treatment plants even. William house. when I interviewed him before he passed, it told me the problem with historians, you guys all want to write about Yellowstone, Yosemite, John Muir, but the real story in America in the 20th century is the miracle of our modern sewage treatment plants. But you guys don't want to go to Yale and do your PhD in sewage. And you want to do something more romantic. Um, but He's right. I mean, we the used to be when Ruckel's House came in ahead of EPA in 1970, you just people were dumping like Atlanta was just dumping raw sewage into its rivers. So don't ever mistake because of our current problems that we didn't do a lot in this third wave I'm talking about or the second wave or the third. America's done a good. We own these wildlife refuges. We own these national parks. We have wilderness. We have wild and scenic rivers. We have an Endangered Species Act. We have environmental impact statements. You know, we've done a lot. It's just the demands of the hyper-industrial world are meaning we need another kind of large movement, and uh, uh, I think the fourth wave is is on the way, but I can't tell you when. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yes, sir. I'm trying to speak loud enough so people in the back you could. You to...
0: Yeah, we have mics back here. So if y'all have a question, feel free to just like throw a hand up, but I'm running you. But one. you
2: have a good voice, too. You do. <laughs> a lot of practice. I think the fourth wave is upon us. And I'm going to attach a name to it. His name is Doug Ptolemy. He has written a, a number of books. But the one that is really seem to be touching people, especially, I think, my age and and younger generations, is Nature's Best Hope. In a correspondence just within the last week, I identified him as the Rachel Carson of our time. Well, very good. And it is a book. In which he makes the case,
1: and this is your son you're talking about.
2: No, no, <laughs> he's a professor, a senior professor. I think it's the University of Delaware, teasing. and I'll be brief. But he makes the case that if we want to have birds, and we we need to have pollinators, and he challenges all of us, and probably everybody in here has a backyard or a garden, to take part of that yard and put it in pollinator plants. Uh, I plowed up about 25% of my lawn, and it's now going to be in Black Eyed Susans and, and uh, uh, plants that do that. So I, I hope that as you continue to pursue your uh, passion for this, and, and by God you do, and this is a marvelous speech, I hope you'll remember his name, Doug Ptolemy. I will, I thank you for that. We were just talking, I don't
1: know if Graham's still in here, but my friend Graham from here, we were uh, talking earlier about the the Amazon impulse of today to quickly buy a book when somebody tells you a title, so I will get it.
3: (laughs) Yes. Hi. Thank you. I uh, spent most of my professional life at EPA. I uh, joined EPA in 1983 when Ruckelshaus was back for yeah. his second tour, right after Ann Gorsuch, Reagan's first administrator, was hauled off to prison. <laughs> so those were interesting times. But I think in some ways um, there has been a, a fourth movement, and it's almost been a counter-revolution. Not an entire pushback, but the whole time I was at EPA, as the science became stronger for the need for protection, the business community became better able to exert counter pressure. And I think ever since you know, the end of that third phase that you talked about, it's been very difficult to get more uh, rigorous environmental controls in place so anyway I well the no, great point that.
1: and you know i reason I, I mentioned jimmy carter a couple times because we're all watching it, him in hospice right now and all of that he after the period i'm talking about carter you know created things like uh, superfund sites pushed through and alaska lands and uh, on and on uh, reagan had 50 wilderness areas uh um done during his time but um I think from 1972 Stockholm meeting when we were taking the lead, the United States, it's a turning more of a global story and it gets confusing guys, as you know, like, well, but cobalt's needed for the battery, but if we get this, da, 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 da. and I, I don't think it's good to shame people about their carbon footprint. Um, because I find it's better to be optimistic and get people to have fun and work together than feeling superior, like, oh, well, your car is, you're driving an SUV, but my car is electric. Well, not everybody can buy an electric car right now. It's just not feasible economically for a lot of people. And you can see why people are confused. Should I be getting gasoline? Should I be? Are we ready yet to go electric? But what if electric? So I always I don't feel I'm saying the fourth way. There's a kind of confusion going on. Of what are what's going to happen? But one also I feel we're on the cusp of something big. And certainly that period you were working there, you know, um, and, and even further into the '90s, I mean, international UN, you know, there, there's so much work going on in all these incredible ways. Uh, and one obviously can probably create other other moments for it. Uh, I think when Obama came in, it looked like he was going to promote like the Eisenhower Highway systems, this kind of green tomorrow, and you get blown back politically, and you know it's hard i mean carter put solar panels on the white house and they got ripped down and you know it's a we're still in this figuring it out phase but when i was just in rhode island and offshore there it's the world's largest wind power off of rhode island and then i went along the rhode island seashore the ocean state and they've got seashore problems they built so close to the ocean, you know, and their problems are coming. A lot, Climate crisis is upon them. I'm just picking one state. We can do all of them, you know. But, you know, so states are starting to wake up. When I was in Rhode Island, I spoke to the legislature there, Democrats and Republicans, and was warmly received a talk not much different than what I just did with you, only because that state's saying, you know, we might have to be the clean energy state. That might be our new call because we got to do oceans. We're going to have to do uh, clean the rivers. Providence has all sorts of environmental problems. If we can contract new green businesses to Rhode Island, it it allows us to avoid a fate of Akron or Youngstown. Um, and you know, with Brown there, a smaller state, CVS is in Rhode Island, the fifth largest company who's now looking at ways that they can participate. The federal government's in Rhode Island a lot because of missile systems and all their two two military senators. I'm just picking one state. You could do it for any, but states are starting to say it's economically viable for us to think of solutions. Uh, And and in in Newport, Rhode Island, one of my favorite towns, it's so low in the 1760 buildings there that the water is just going to flood that if you look off at of Jamestown, Rhode Island, that island where the beautiful historic town of could get divided into three islands, one soon. So these are real, you know, events that are going on now. And it's the accumulation of them, that I think, will be a tipping point at, at some juncture. It's going to make the public in the midterms environment was like the sixth most important issue to voters. Uh, There was a period in my book when it was number one or two, uh, when it gets upgraded. Now, in the Democratic Party, environment's giant. You know, it's up there, but then once it becomes a national election, it gets gets downsized, and at some point, all Americans are going to be saying, and it'll be on the economic incentive of it. Yes, sir.
0: Thank you. I'm curious if if you think this fourth wave can happen in an age when um, we have so much anti-science sentiment, um, willful ignorance, if you will, um, and uh,
1: and
2: what it will take to get past that so that this fourth wave might someday happen.
1: Well, I'll, I'll end with that in, in a question and in, um, in maybe in greet you outside there. The, when Kennedy was elected in 1960, science was Time Magazine's Person of the Year, collectively. There was this huge belief in the scientist. So, when a scientist issued these big reports, people paid attention. Somewhere along the line, let's just call it 2010, but it probably earlier than that, there started becoming, well, anybody can buy the science, or who's the, depending on which science you want to believe in. And there became a dilution of, the scientists as referees on environmental issues, for example, but also you see it with media. I wrote a biography of Walter Cronkite, and you know Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. Journalism had a seventy percent approval rating when, as uh, when Cronkite left in 1981, seventy percent approval of journalists. Journalist today, it's like fifteen percent so the medias people don't trust people don't trust uh, the uh, science anymore people don't trust congress they don't trust government institutions conspiracy theories are flooding our social media you know we're, we're at a, in a kind of a neo civil war state of, of that so it, and then it add global climate to it and a war in ukraine you know so it's 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 very um, chaotic but the, the human instinct to have, have clean air and water and fresh food and natural, the, the healing powers of the natural world uh, are still there too. And at some point, I think there'll be this enough moment. Uh, I don't know if it'll come too late. Uh, I know we're on the cusp of it now, and I don't know how it'll matter. I'm not a, a prophet. I don't have any soothsayer thing, but it, it's there. I mean, you're feeling it. Growing, so I, I try not to be disheartened about it, because somehow we're going to figure this out. And uh, and science, but but if, if the fact that climate science has still has deniers is disheartening, there are no question about it. Thank you, guys.